Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Uh, we're going to jump into uh, our sermon today. We are in Romans again, chapter 8, verse 18 through 30, and we're going to read, uh, and then we'll break it down. If you want to stand with me, uh, let's do that. Let's stand while we read uh, the word together, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We should say amen for that. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because of the Spirit, because of the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Father, we just ask that you be with us today. Uh, Draw our hearts towards you. Let us see the beauty of who you are, what you've done, what you uh, have secured for us, what is coming over the horizon and, and even in the suffering that, that we will face. Let us see the beauty of who you are and how good you are. Holy Spirit, draw near to our hearts. Draw us towards the Son. Let us see the beauty of Jesus and the kindness of the Father. We pray that in your name. Amen. Okay, so again, Romans 8, as you saw, uh, this is a third of four sermons coming out of this chapter, and this is just an amazing chapter that I hope that you have enjoyed. Paul weaves in this chapter uh, just beautiful realities about salvation for us, uh, which kicked off when he said, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who are saved. This was a massive statement that we kick off kind of the beginning of the chapter in, a beautiful revelation. And it's easy to wonder at times where you stand with God. Like, where, where are we at? How are we doing? Are we okay? Are we not okay? Especially on the rough days when maybe you're not uh, crushing it. Maybe the Bible has collected some dust, and maybe you're focusing on your kingdom and not God's, and maybe the revelation that, that sin is slipping back in and it's kind of grasped a hold of you again, it, it comes to light. In those moments, it's easy to wonder, God, are you going to blast me for that? Or are you angry with me? Are you disappointed in me? Do you resent me because of all this? God, where are we? And Paul's message to us is, is Christian, if you are in Christ, the condemnation is gone. You don't have to ask that question anymore. 
God will not remember your sins. Wrath is off the table. It's not an option for you any longer. You are safe. You are loved. You are adopted. You are sealed. In the text last week, you are sunized. You are grafted into the family. So in moments of weakness, he's not going to pick up a new grievance with you. You are a son and you are a daughter. No matter what the accuser whispers in your ear, no matter how loud you condemn yourself, stand firm and know, though I am not perfect, the perfect one stands in my place and that is more than good enough. Condemnation is not a worry anymore. So he opens it up. Uh, Paul makes that declaration and the natural progression of thought flows into the text that we saw last week. The question that flows out of the statement, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ the question that we wrestle with is like, well, how do I know if that's me? How do I know if I'm the, the no condemnation camp? How, how do I know if that's a reality for me? And Paul presents us with kind of three signs that show that you are adopted and that there is no condemnation for you. And he starts with the first sign that you'll see is the spirit is waging war against your flesh with you. You actually start destroying the sin that was destroying you before you came to Christ. You're putting it to death. You're waging war. Are you perfect? No. But are you battling and taking ground? Yes, you are. This is an unmistakable sign. We are not those who cannot fight back. The Spirit helps us fight against the flesh. That's sign one. You are adopted into the family of God, and it changes the way that you literally see God. That's part two. You declare that he is your Abba. Your father, your, your daddy, he's not a distant deity that you're trying to navigate or strafe around him anymore. He is a father that you want to intimately connect to. Will that wax and wane and change a little bit? Yes, but you relate to him like a good father instead of a, a, a distant force that you're trying to figure out how to, how to walk around. And the third sign, you're an heir with Christ, and this leads you to suffer with him. Probably the least popular sign. Uh, This is a major one nonetheless, though. Jesus was killed for who he was, what he said, and how he lived. To follow him, we we do these weird statements where I believe in Jesus. Yeah, 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 but do you follow him? The demons believe in him. To follow Jesus personally with your life, to live in a way that tries, imperfectly as it may be, to model Jesus will cause you to suffer at times. They killed him for being him. If you follow him, there's going to be some suffering you hit. He was rejected. We will at times be rejected. Will it be every moment of every day? No, no, it won't. But it will be sometimes if you're following him. These were three signs that, that show us if there is now therefore no condemnation for us, which then leads us to another question. We had to rehash those because the progression of being heirs with Jesus in his suffering presents this question that maybe we don't talk about out loud. Is it worth it? Is, it, is the inheritance that we get as Christians worth the hardship and the pain? Is it worth the heartache of living as a child of God? Is future glorification, is the promises of what will come in the future, can it possibly be good enough to, to withstand all the pain and the suffering and the trial that you will face in the present moment? Many people, including most likely some who we know personally, maybe it's our family, they answer this question, no. No, it's not. They, they profess faith as Christians for a while. They seek to live God's way for a while, but then in time, they just say, man, it's just, it's too much. 
The present suffering, the present pain is not worth it, and they fall away. Like the rich young ruler who talks to Jesus in the New Testament, he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus begins to talk to him about the heart and trusting him, and what does he do? He decides the cost is too high, and one of the saddest verses you will find that we skip by, he just walks away from the Savior. It is too much. I can't, I can't do it. Many will put on the morality of Christ for, for a minute. And I go, no, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. It's too hard. Now, Paul wants us to be shepherded through this very real question of is it worth it? Because whether you voiced it out loud or not, here's the reality. You've pondered it. Maybe, maybe when the tears of the days are heavy and you're driving, you're going, man, I don't know. I don't know. Is it? Following Jesus is something that will, at moments, be a grueling journey. To follow the one who the world is dead set against him is not going to be easy. The, the way I think of it emotionally and physically is it's like paddling upstream every day, every minute, every moment. There's a current coming this way, and you're going the other. Which, what, what does that mean? It means you're always moving. When you stop, you're going the other way with, the, with the, 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 the trajectory of the world. It's like running uphill. At times, it's going to make you wonder, man, why am I doing this? I'm so tired. Wouldn't it be easy just to turn around and go with everybody else? Man, they say God's love. Maybe, like, I tried. Like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be easier? And then what do we do? We begin to romanticize the idea of not dealing with the struggle. What if, I, what if I could do Sunday fun day? What if I didn't have to walk with community? What if I didn't have to be salt and light in the world? What if I could just be quiet and go and do and be everything that they are? And begin to ask the question, would I be better off giving up? Again, this may not be a question that you vocalize to people, but I guarantee you've asked it. Paul writes these words, for when that moment comes your way, and it will. If it has not already, it will. He says, hey, when you're asking, is it worth it? He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the future glory that is to be revealed. What's he say? It doesn't even come close to the beauty of what you have coming. He answers the question immediately, is it worth it? Yes, and then he's going to go through the why. Yes, it's worth it. And he wants to put in our minds a heavenly perspective, right? a focus on eternity, on the scale of eternity, the, the, the suffering, the tension, the trial that we go through in the here and the now are like comparing a thimble of water to the vastness of the ocean. Yes, it's still water. It's not nearly the same thing. One vastly eclipses the other. Now notice this, Paul does not make light of current, current suffering as if it's not real. He doesn't put on a military hat and just say, suck it up, it's fine. Just move forward, it doesn't hurt, stop crying, it's okay. No, it's brother, sister. I know it hurts. But what is coming will eclipse the pain more than you could ever realize. I appreciate that because he's not trying to minimize it. He's acknowledging it. And then he's saying, but don't give up in light of it. John Newton wrote in a book, Amazing Grace, this 
excerpt about the comparison of the suffering in the modern day of following Jesus. It's not the suffering of, of, of being a jerk or anything like that. It's the suffering of following Christ. He writes, suppose a man was, was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, right? Inherited this monster thing and, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out the remaining one mile My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. The point is the road is going to be hard. It will feel long. It will will feel overwhelming at times, but the destination is worth the bumps of the journey to get there. Paul is calling us to the hope that we have in Christ. Again, that's pointing your, your view to the eternal. We are used to viewing the world and our life and circumstance in light of the here and the now within a month window or a couple month window or a seasonal window. And Paul's going, look up to the horizon of what you have coming in the light of the, the, the eternal. It is worth it. Put your hope in Christ and what he has done. We get to experience some parts of our salvation in the here and now. The Spirit is with us. We talked about that last week. We can battle against our sin. We can see the beauty of Jesus. We get to walk in community. There's many beautiful things that we get here and now, but the fullness of our salvation is over the horizon. We're not there yet. We get it in the future. This cannot be stressed enough. If you do not understand the need to gauge and look at your future hope, If you live your life hinging whether you think Jesus is worth following based solely upon how you feel now, what you get now, how hard things are now, you will quit. You'll give up. Why do you think they talk about hope and future all the time through the Bible? Because it's needed. It's not something just our grandparents do. It's what we do in the middle of a broken world. The hope of the eternal is what sustains us. If you end up only looking at the here and now in situational and emotional circumstance right now, what will happen is you'll become bitter, disheartened, and angry, and overwhelmed. You'll probably view yourself as a victim who suffers needlessly, and you'll give up. So the first takeaway from this text Believer suffering is normal. The whole world is trying to deny that. Why do you think they're so angry? Right? Free, not in the notes. Look around. The angriest battles we have is people believe if we just negotiate around a situation a certain way, if the dumb people will be out and we'll be in, if we would have just done this instead of this, if we would have just, then we could get out of suffering. It doesn't work that way. We're in a broken, fallen creation. Believer, following Jesus will walk you into suffering. We need to understand suffering is normal. It's not special. It's not odd. It's not other. It's not only thing that missionaries do in, in other countries. Suffering is normal. And what does that mean? You should expect it. What happens if you do not expect to suffer? you'll hit it and you'll lash out and blame everyone around you because you're disappointed that you hit it and thought you wouldn't have to. You hear me? You will lash out against the people around you. Why? Because you thought you shouldn't have to suffer. When Jesus tells you the whole time, count the cost. You have to carry your cross. All of these analogies all of the time. And then Paul just tells us, you are an heir in the suffering of Jesus. Suffering is normal. How normal is suffering? 
Well, Paul says not only will all believers experience it, he says even creation is in bondage. Even creation is suffering at the present moment. What does he mean? Well, creation is caught in this continuous cycle of death and decomposition. It can be neat to think of how flowers grow from being fertilized, how they literally spring forth in life in a healthier way because something else has died, right? But it's overwhelming and heavy to realize everything is constantly in the act of dying. Like tell your kids that story at night. Hey, buddy, everything's dying. The end. Do you want to pray? Yes. This means the whole universe is deteriorating, though. It's running down. It's breaking down. Everything in nature wears down and dies. What does that mean? Nature in its state right now is a killer. There's nothing in nature that isn't presently dying. Because of that, it groans longing to be set free from this cycle. And this groaning uh, can be talked about in, in many different ways. They link some of these to just natural disasters and hurricanes, this groaning where, where it's like the pain of childbirth, the severe pain that, that comes before the revelation of something new and beautiful. Paul is poetically pointing us forward to anticipate what will it be like when creation isn't frustrated and in corruption and suffering as well. This should incite awe in us. How amazing is creation already? I love the mountains. Right? To be able to find a place and go up 13 or 14,000 feet, you're hundreds of feet above the tree line. You're looking down at trees. Your eyes can, can view further than you could possibly walk in the day. You are above the clouds, and you can see the, 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 the beautiful stuff everywhere, mountain ranges and just massive existence. It's amazing. Some of you are, are ocean people. To have your feet in the sand and see the waves break and hear the droning sound of the ocean that's constantly in motion, which just sets you into this relaxing state in the blue and the sky and the amazing. It's great now. What will it be like when it's not suffering? When it's not corrupted? Probably pretty amazing. What's Paul saying? All of us are anticipating being set free from the suffering and the bondage of a broken world. For this reason, creation is eagerly anticipating future glory. Not just us, creation is. One translation says the whole Creation is on tiptoe, just waiting to see the sons of God coming into their own. Right now, humanity is, we're kind of ordinary people. On the surface, Christians are normal people, weak people, clay pots. At the same time, there's something very special about a Christian, which will be revealed in the future. In the end, God will lift the veil and reveal his children all of those who are in Christ will be glorified. Sin will but not be an issue. Bodies will not break down. All of the things and the struggles, they'll be gone. They'll be something so different. He says creation is on tiptoe to see this. Why? Because right after, even creation will be glorified and set free as well. This is our future hope. Not just that we, uh, that, that, that bodies, but even creation will be renewed. The renewal and restoration and the making right of all things. When, when the, the way the garden was will be the way all creation is. For some, you may hear this and think, man, that's too much. Like, that sounds pretty artsy. I don't know. It's a lot to believe. 
How do we anticipate something that epic? Like, we, we see no signs of that in the here and the, the now. How do we put our hope of this future glory that we don't really know how to grasp a hold of? And we, I, I, What do we do with that? That's why he wrote 24 and 26. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Friends, don't rest your hope solely on the things that you can fathom in your own imagination. Instead, hope in the words of the Lord. The promises of the Lord. What's a stronger thing to put your future hope and faith in, church? What you can comprehend, wrap your mind around, and envision, or what God, the Father of all creation, says to be true in promises? Paul says, hope in what you can't see. And put your hope on it and have patience for it to come. Now, I appreciate Paul doing all of this, tying creation into suffering for us, because one of the worst things about suffering is it makes us feel alone, isolated. The pain forces us out on an island, and and that makes things even worse. What's worse than being in pain? Being alone with just our thoughts while we're in pain. We often will retreat away from community when things are hard, when we're suffering, thinking, man, we're the only ones who know what pain feels like. One of the biggest lies the enemy tells us is that other people can't relate to you if they haven't gone through what you've gone through. It's just not true. But we push ourselves out onto an island, and Paul, through this text, says, sons and daughters of God, you're not alone. Every believer goes through suffering in their union with Christ, all of us. The only ones who never face it are the ones who aren't actually following Jesus. You hear that? That's hard words to hear. To follow Jesus in a world dead set against him will cause this. The only ones who never face it aren't actually following him. So out of the gate we know we aren't by ourselves and we can relate to each other's pain. So we should press into God, our Abba, our Father when we suffer and our community because they know what it's like and can walk with us through it. And past that, not only are the sons co-heirs with the suffering, so is creation. We are people who suffer in a creation that is suffering. We aren't alone. It's not just us. It's just not our mistakes that caused us to suffer. This is our present reality. Again, that doesn't take your pain away. But my gosh, how hard is it to feel like you're the only one and by yourself and no one gets it? Paul's going, your brothers get it. Even creation, the rocks understand what it's like to be broken. You're not alone. There's others who are in the middle of it with you. On top of that, Paul says, even in our weakness, when we are suffering the spirit, this is the third person of the Trinity, the same one who helps us in our battle against sin, the spirit helps us in the middle of our weakness. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for, uh, for as we ought, but the, suffer, the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what is on the mi- in the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The point is, again, when we are suffering, we are not alone in our suffering, Fellow believers are in it as well, and so is creation. But not only that, but the Holy Spirit is with us in the middle of our suffering. Even when we are too weak or beaten down or grieved, there will come a time 
When the waves of your suffering are so high that you literally don't have words, you cannot seem to speak. You may think, and I, I mean, I thought this in my, my younger years. I just don't, I don't understand when people were praying, Maranatha, God, finish this. And they're talking about suffering all the time. I was like, I, don't, I just don't get it. Hold on, you will if you haven't hit it. There will be moments when you don't have words and the waves are too high. Or the pain is so disorientating that you don't even know what to pray for if you were to pray. In those moments, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We have to see the intentionality of what Paul is saying here in these verses. When we can't seem to do anything but groan in pain and weakness, when you are too busted up to muster a sentence, when all you can do is taste your tears and feel the anxiety of the uncertainty of what you're in the middle of, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit uh, that Jesus sent, steps in and prays for us. He groans with us and for us to the Father. Can you grasp how amazing that is? When you can't muster a word, the Spirit handles it for you. Right alongside of you in your weakness. So in the moments when you hang your head and you, and you, you just, I, don't, I don't know what to say, just present your heart to God. And when you can't speak, there's still prayer going out over the situation. The third member of the Trinity is interceding and praying for you when you can't say a word. This is profoundly powerful. Because right? it's even more wrecking when you're that busted down. You, I, I, can't, I can't even speak when the Spirit is speaking. Beyond just moments of pain, when you don't know what to pray for, right? when situations arise and you worry that you don't have the right words. Have you ever been there? Everybody's like, yeah unsure that you can approach the Father because you're just not really sure how, how do I mentally angle in at you in prayer because I don't, I don't know what your will over this situation is. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Like, how do I, what do I do or how do I say or how do I confidently speak? What, what do I do? How do I navigate these situations? I, I don't know what to say. Paul says in the moments when you don't know what to say, just speak anyway. And the one who searches the heart your heart, the new heart that you've been given through Christ, he'll straighten it out. He'll pray for you the prayer that you just couldn't put together. That's super helpful. How amazing in that is that the Spirit will intercede for you. He will correct, edit, adjust, and strengthen your goofy prayer. Yes, Father, this is what we're going to say, actually. He will intercede. So when you or other believers aren't sure exactly how to pray, when you're alone and don't know exactly what you should say or how to navigate God, just let the words fly. And the Spirit will help you straighten out the prayer. The point is placing your heart before the Father in prayer, and the Spirit will help do the other work in it. The cool part about this is there are moments when you, you're not really sure, but you just kind of jump in, and the Spirit is with you, that then all of a sudden your prayer gets good, and you're like, I don't even know where that came from. That was a really good prayer. That's the Holy Spirit interceding, not just speaking when, when, you, when you can't put together a coherent thought, not just editing your prayer when it was a little sideways. He'll also give you better prayers as you keep praying. Do you want to get better at prayer? Pray more. The Spirit will help straighten out the goofy words and even give you better words that you just didn't even know were in there. Paul's showing us really beautiful things about the middle of suffering. Hey, man, 
you can pray to the Father, your Abba, through the Spirit who will help you when you aren't sure what to say and speak for you when you can't muster a word in the name of the Son, the one who merited for you to even be able to approach the Father. Even in present circumstance or heavy circumstance, Paul is saying you can pray at any moment in confidence. There's no need or no circumstance that you can't pray through. Well, I don't know. Don't worry, Spirit will help you. Well, I'm in too much pain. Just present yourself to God. The Spirit will pray for you. Verse 28, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he also called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he is also glorified. Countless times I've heard verse 28 used in wonky wonky context. When I know that God works all things for good and often people hijack that to mean and I know God will make my plan work out the way I want and I know God will help this go well and my business go well and these things go well and he'll prosper me through this and people turn that verse into a weird prosperity text He'll prosper and make everything good and make me happy and will be powerful. And yes, I know God. All the, all the plans, and they're all good all the time. Notice that to use that text in that way makes no coherent sense for where it's located. It's located in the middle of a text over suffering and a text over your weakness and your frailty. This isn't about your business or your desire getting met or your best life now. What Paul is saying is he's going back to the idea of pain and suffering. Back to the moment where you're asking, is it worth it? Man, because this hurts. Is it worth it to keep stepping forward? Because this is so much pain. When we struggle to believe that the future glory is worth the pain, Paul says, friends, if you love God, even in this suffering currently, it's part of the plan to get you to glory, and it's not meaningless. That's the part of the plan he's talking about. God's plans are not to make all of your biggest dreams come through. His plan is to make you look like Jesus and bring you through to the end, even in the middle of pain. This means when life goes wrong, when tragedy or pain come knocking, God will use your grief that suffering to bring good in you eternally. See, we can tend to wonder when pain or suffering comes, God, did, did you leave me? This is what deism is. I believe that you created, but you just walk away and you don't care anymore. Right? Did, did, did you leave me? God, are you mad at me? Did you pick back up condemnation? No, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Maybe your heart just goes, why in the world would you let this happen? Because I don't like your plan. And Paul says, hey, God will use even this to create something in you, to do something in you that is good. Not to make your preferred outcome come about. He will use even the worst waves of suffering to make you more like Jesus. Again, what is that good? What can he possibly do with our suffering that is good? In verse 29, he'll conform us to the image 
of his son. Believer, understand you are not meant to accept Jesus in word one day and look the exact same way when you go to glory and die. Those who follow Jesus have the spirit to fight the flesh. Why? Because God is turning his children into looking more like his son. That's the goal. That's the destination. This means suffering is often the tool that molds us more than anything else. We deliver, oh God, will you get me out of this suffering? And we don't realize that God is harnessing the suffering to change you into something more beautiful than you were before, meaning more trusting, more kind. How do angry people become soft? Pain. Right? God uses suffering. When you think, God, why? God, how would you allow this to happen? Paul says, trust that God will one day in glory, or one day in glory, you'll see that God used that to shape you. He ground down the hard edges of your heart. Hear me, this is not wanting us to romanticize suffering. Because it is true that you can say, I hated that. And also say, and God changed me through that. Those two statements can also go together. That's what Paul's wanting us to say. Understand, God is shaping you to be more like the Son. So as many have said before, don't waste your suffering. Right, here's the temptation when you suffer. Life is hard. I deserve to Netflix out the entire week. Life is hard. Go buy something. Life is hard. Drink too much. Life is hard. Lash out. No, no, no. Life is hard. Pray to your Abba. The beauty of this is you can take your unfiltered pain and tears before the Father. I say, Lord, ooh, I hate this so much. Make it mean something, though. That's what it means by don't waste your suffering. Instead of zoning out, lean into the Lord. We help me see Jesus more. We make it worth it. I'm a hard-headed man. There's something gratifying about knowing that big moments of suffering that other people meant to hurt, that God's going to turn me more into Jesus through that, right? This reminds me of the Old Testament story of Joseph. His brothers betrayed him. After all the pain, he said to them, what you meant to hurt and kill me? <laughs> God meant it for good. He did a work in me through it. It was terrible, right? Joseph's brother's trying to kill him. Tossed in a jail for something he didn't do. God, the Father was working. Even at the time that I couldn't see exactly what he was doing, I can see now. His hand was at work. Is the present suffering worth it? Yes, it is. Here's the thing you have to grasp a hold of. And in your present suffering, God is working through it as well. It's not meaningless. Paul lands this text by reminding us of God's sovereign hand over all things. 
The God who predestines his children to look like the son is the same God who calls sinners to become sons and saves them. He is the same God who sent Jesus, the just one to justify them, and is the same God who will one day glorify them. This God can use your suffering to do something beautiful. And when you begin to think, this situation is too horrible, it's too big. There's no way that he can do something good. There's no way that my heart can respond well or the spirit can use this. There's no way. When you think there's no possible good that can come from this, Paul says, look at the full scope of God's worth, of his work. Again, it's, hey, lift your eyes. You're looking down too much. Look to the, to the scope of the eternal. If God can do all that, if God can predestine, if he can justify a creation that has no justification, or that, that is not just on their own, if he can glorify them one day, if he can do all of that, then I think he can bring good out of your suffering in the moment. I know it hurts. He can still bring good out of it. Again, we need to be careful. Many believers say that their suffering is suffering for Jesus, and honestly, it's suffering for their stupidity. When you suffer because of your sin, that's not what they're talking about here. God's not going to use the suffering that you walked into for your sinful practices to make you more like Jesus. He's calling you out of that, saying, don't do it again. This is suffering for following Christ. God will use that. And it will be worth it. And God is faithfully at work. And one day, we'll see the work fully revealed to us. And we'll have the hope of glory unveiled and we'll see the beauty, the full beauty. And Paul goes, trust me, it's going to be worth it. Did it hurt? Yeah. Christ will wipe away the tears and the future glory will be better than you could have ever imagined. As we close down this text, man, you guys can come back up. I just remind you of the beauty that Paul has laid out in Romans. I'm, I'm a little careful. I've tried to give us application handles on some of these texts. I just want to remind you of kind of what he's done. In Romans, the gospel is the power of God to save, to bring former enemies into the family of God. He does this through his son, Jesus. We have no perfection of our own, so God sent Jesus to be perfect for us. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to fix all of the things. You believe in the son. You follow the son, and when you do that, you are saved, brought into the family of God. Condemnation is off the table. You don't earn anything. The beauty of the gospel is not religion. If you do this, God will love you. It's God has done this to show you that he's loved you. Follow Jesus in light of that. In this, you're adopted into the family of God. You get a good Father, the Spirit is sent to walk with you in the middle of the craziness. And though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though you will suffer, though there will be pain at times, it'll be worth it. When the glory of the future is fully revealed, you'll never ask that question again, was it worth it? Because it will be. So take heart. If you're, if you're hurting or you're suffering, man, I don't min minimize it but I would tell you it's normal and it's doing something in you. The biggest lie that our culture tells us is we should be able to navigate outside of suffering. No, we can't. We're in a broken world. And even more, the, the beauty is God is working in the suffering, but the promise is one day the suffering will be over. This is the future hope. This hope sounds crazy to the world. How could you believe that? It sounds delusional. That sounds crazy. That is the hope that we are saved into though. 
We throw the full weight of our confidence into that. All of this is through Christ, the one who saves the lost because he was perfect in our place. All of this was from the Father. The Father made the plan to even make this possible. And all of this is by the Spirit because the Spirit shows us Jesus. And I pray that your heart would be encouraged. If you're here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I would just say you do not need to do anything special. You just have to tell him, I'm a sinner in need of the perfect Savior. Save me, I want to follow you. I'd be happy to pray with you about that if you have questions about that. You don't have to reach perfection in order to be saved. The perfect one has reached out for you. You just need to acknowledge it and walk in the reality of that. We're going to take communion today as we normally do. We have the cups on the entryway. Anyone can take communion. If your faith is in Jesus, you do not have to be a member here to do so. But 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we're taking, we're remembering the body of Jesus was broken and the blood of Jesus was shed for our sins. This is the only reason we have an eternal hope. It's because of what Christ has done. The Father sent him, the Son came and walked it out, and it is the Spirit who shows him to you. So here's the reality. Even in suffering, we can take and say, your sacrifice is enough to redeem me and bring me into the family, and your sacrifice promises that one day there will be no more suffering again. I pray that your heart would be built up as you take. Jesus is good and kind and done more for you than you could ever imagine. Rest in him even if the suffering hurts. Father, I pray that you would draw near to us today. Let us see the beauty of who you are. God, I pray that we would see more clearly the reality that you have come with a purpose to save the lost. And then even with that, you have come to make the lost look more like the son. Do your work in us. Lord, conform us to the image of your son. Make us more like Jesus. Draw him to him, us to him, Lord. May we not run away from you in suffering, but run to you as a good father. May it not be meaningless. Do your work in the depths of our heart, even through pain and tears. We ask that in your name. Give us joy to worship you with. May our words be pleasing to your ear. Draw hearts to you, Father. We love you. Amen. We stand and worship with me with a couple songs before we go.